This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Go to bellacatering.com.au if you're in the greater Sydney area to check it out. And why are you cooking? Just order in, you maniac. What's wrong with you? This is one of the maddest episodes of this show that has ever been done. It features one of my favorite human beings, artists, critical minds of all time. And uh, this man's unfathomable ability to bring people joy in the work that he does and find joy and find that connection, that indelible connection that movies make is unfathomable to me. Um, he's a powerhouse. It's Matt Zolazite's. A one eight minute series would not be the same without him. Enjoy this circus. Whoever it is who wrote that note wants to meet us here tonight? This is so cool, Bart. We're just like Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah, except their dad wasn't waiting in the car reading Archie comics. Stuck up Ripperdale punks. Think they're too good for me. You're on the right track. Follow the names. How the hell do you know? I can't tell you who I am, but I worked on the campaign. <laughs> Hey, Mr. Smithers! Well, you might as well give me a ride home now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is... He's a mensch. In the nicest possible way. In Australia, we, we, we didn't understand what this word meant until like a few years ago. But like, we now know what it means. And he's kind of a film Twitter movie mensch. He's... Are you are you describing a third guest who will arrive shortly? <laughs> no, I'm describing I'm describing the, the man who sits in front of me. He's just uh, an absolute towering film mind, and we all love him. And I'm so grateful that he's on the show uh, because I would have been devastated not to have him on another one. Heat Minute production. I'm excited that he's going to be doing. By the time you are listening to this, you would have heard him already on one Heat Minute on Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, on Increment Vice, and now you're hearing him on all the President's Minutes, and it's just a treat. He's one of my favorite film critics alive. Matt Zolosites, welcome back to a one hit. Hey, Blake. How are you? I'll try not to drool after that introduction. (laughs) Well, you know... uh, I opened my mouth mouth on a frog... (laughs) In the nicest possible way, I love you. I love you. I'm so glad that you're doing the show. And uh, it's yeah. what a, a what a movie to talk about for 2020 is probably a good way to start. What can you What can you say? Well, what can you say? I mean, <laughs> I'm getting to the point where I don't even, I don't even like to say the year that we're in. It's like it's like it's like uh, you know he should, he who shall not be named in Harry Potter. <laughs> Which, by the way, the, the way J.K. Rowling is carrying on, we're not going to be able to say the name of those books either. <laughs> The I've, series that shall not be named. Oh man, <laughs> it's 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 like every day I spoke to a 
probably a mutual uh, person that we've both interacted with, and he's been on One Hit Minute, Jordan Harper, who's a terrific author and a screenwriter. And Jordan said there's a piece of graffiti that's near his house that just said, what's next? And he's seen seen that graffiti, like, as he's gone past to, like, go out for, you know, his fortnightly or weekly, like, shopping run. And it's still there, and it's been there after a few new wrinkles in this whole madness. It's like, you know, the fires in Australia, as some folk would know when I kicked this off, and then COVID, and then all of the, the... this social upheaval and everything that's going on. And it's just like, he just goes, I keep seeing it. And that keeps standing like, like the Berlin wall. (laughs) It's just like, or something It's like, what's next? Who knows what's next, man? That's that, that that artist is that, that street artist doesn't realize that they're a poet at the same time. It's just incredible. That's, that's what you would call. That's the street art version of what we would call an evergreen tweet. (laughs) Evergreen graffiti tag. Holy shit. <laughs> Evergreen Gurfee. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. I mean, I, I can't, I can't even begin to tell you. I was, I, I started rewatching Deadwood and, uh, the, the episode where wild, where wild Bill was assassinated, you know, spoiler alert for something that happened in the 1880s in Deadwood. Um, it's, it's one of the most incredible episodes of television I've ever seen. And that last whole last section where they're chasing the assassin through the town and dragging him down in the mud. And like the entire town is kind of becoming one collective organism for the first time yes. on the show. And at that exact moment, a guy rides into town with a severed uh, a native American head that they're trying to use to like stir up, you know, animosity against uh, the indigenous people. And he can't even get their attention. Yes. You can't even get your attention. There's a guy on horseback and he's waving a severed head around going, woo, woo. People are like, whatever, dude. That's 2020. <laughs> That's 2020. <laughs> and there are things that we'll be talking about them for weeks and they're like gone in three days. Like, did you hear the president opened up his shirt to reveal uh, 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 Kuato, the Martian leader from Total Recall? I'm like, no, I didn't see that. Do you have a link? <laughs> You know, I mean, <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know what doom scrolling hellhole you went down today, but that just didn't happen to jump into my feed. It's like I can't, <laughs> I can't follow everything. I can't follow everything. But, but I mean, you know, really, what it's about, you know, like Lindsey Graham just last week, Lindsey Graham, like the revelations. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That would have been the hugest story in like 1995. We would have never shut up about it. Now it's like, did something happen with Lindsey Graham? I can't remember. There's an there's a journalist in Australia. So the the New York Times op-ed piece, which stirred up a whole bunch of controversy and apt controversy at the time for someone coming in with like, well, you know, there are good people on both, the, the good people on both sides op-ed piece <laughs> that, that caused so much hell. There's an Australian, there's an Australian equivalent. There's like in our conservative paper, which is titled the Australian um, someone wrote an op-ed piece where for Australia, of, course it is. Uh, of course Australian first nations people used to be called aboriginals but the, the term kind of got um, the term kind of got co-opted as like an abusive term so you know now when we call first nations people in Australia we say indigenous indigenous or Torres Strait right. Islanders and that's kind of just the standard so a white guy in the Australian, our big, like one of our biggest publications on the weekend, says that all the problems with, and this is his exact quote, all the problems with Aboriginals and Negroes are their own. 
And it what, was, is it 1955 now? What's I happening? Like, I was like, you know, the only thing that may save this guy's career is the rest of the shit that is happening in the world right now that people might miss that. And like in Australia, it's having... A, all the journos are having our same moment that the journos uh, with the times did, which is like, how in 2020 does that happen? And then the answer ultimately is, well, it's 2020. Of course, of course. It's 2020, but it's also, you know what? It's also eternally 1920 and 1820 on the inside of some people. So, you know, what can you say? But, you know, uh, so I did a little reading before this podcast to get to refresh my memory about, about the film and some historical events. I didn't rewatch the movie because I've seen it so many times. I figured I'm good, but, um, wow. I mean, this, these events happened, uh, almost 50 years ago and they, and they, and you know, you're not, I'm not going to say what people think. I'm going to say that it seems like it happened a thousand years ago because the idea, the very idea that in the United States of America, Republicans and Democrats could look at the behavior of the president and go, yeah, this guy's got to go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what this is going to do to my party, but I'm going to have to cross the aisle. It's inconceivable. It's, it is truly inconceivable. And, and, and I, I, you know, I know we got to this point incrementally, but, and also the idea that you could um, get a president on tape talking about immoral or illegal or, or, or bigoted things, and that would be the end of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, so, and, and that's enough. <laughs> like, no, now they have a press conference and do that. <laughs> they, they, like you know, think about all these movies. God bless them. Oh, I feel bad. All these movies over the last like century that have ended with somebody going, "Put the tape in," and and you see like the you know the guy who's running for mayor was like, "I hate the blacks." Blah blah blah. And the audience is like, "He's horrible. We can't vote for him." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that doesn't happen. That's that's the striking thing, right? At the beginning of this, you know, and and it's that this is the beautiful alchemy of this movie is that sometimes it feels such it's such a salve, it feels so immediate, it feels so refreshing to be like this is such a now movie. But you're so right. That's the thing I think ultimately when I'm sort of unpacking why it is a salve is because you're like, remember when people just could sit down and have a moral, like a morality conversation, like is it right yeah. that this is happening? Yes or no. And so many of these beautifully played witnesses in these bit parts, these actors that come in and just crush the whole movie and they're in it for one scene are those moral moments where they sit down and they say, you know, I'm, I'm a Republican, but this goes beyond party politics. And that, that is yeah, or like, like, like the moment in, uh, in, you know, Beatrice Strait scene in network where she's kind of, she comes in, she only has one scene, but she's kind of the conscience of the whole film. Yes. And, uh, you know, do the right thing has several scenes like that. Although, you know, it's not quite as clear cut as some people would think. But, but yeah, and it's just, it's just really, you know, I, I should say here, and and I think a lot of people would assume otherwise. But you know, I, I was actually uh, supported uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. Like, I didn't think it was like really an impeachable offense. Like even, even the obstruction and all that stuff, I felt like compared to Watergate, it was so minor and it was, there was clearly uh, a more partisan, like we can get him this way. Let's get him kind of thing. But that being said, the guy lied under oath. Yes. He lied under oath. And like, and I, and I, and I keep having conversations with my progressive and liberal friends 
to the effect of, uh, well, they're so much clearly worse than we are and, and all of that. And like, I just think like, look, if you lie under, if you're the president of the United States and you lie under oath, which is the single most basic thing they tell you not to do, that's like the beginning of every other criminal investigation is it starts by saying, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but so help you God? And you go, I do. And if you lie after that, you shouldn't be president. Yes. You shouldn't be president. And, 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 uh, you know, and I, and I feel like, you know, we should return to that standard and everybody should be on board with it. And obviously people are complicated and they sometimes presidents have to do bad things for the greater good. But like when you have a really clear cut case where like they swore on a Bible and said they wouldn't do something and then they do it, <laughs> they should go. Yeah. It's, they should go, you know? it's, it's, it's like, there are obviously grades of whatever the offense is, but if you're asked and you're the president, you've got to role model what the behavior you aspire the rest of the country to do. So it's like you're ultimately setting an example for every person who swears on that Bible from then on. Like, can you, <laughs> like, that's yeah. that's the MO is like, you're there going, what example am I going to set? And right. if the example is I'm going to lie under oath to try and protect scandalous things, even though they might be relatively minor in the grand scheme of things, it's like, you lied, man. You could have right then and there. Yes, said, and said it invites the, the not unreasonable question, well, what else has he lied about? What else is he going to lie about? Exactly. I mean, and it's different from like the Russians say, do you have a new top secret uh, nuclear submarine uh, that is invisible to radar? And you, the president, say, no, we have no such thing. Like that's different. <laughs> That's different. That's, different. that's national security. That's yeah. that's different. That's national security. That's going, you know, that's classified or whatever. And you don't have to say yeah. it to a foreign power, whatever the case may be. But, you know, <laughs> did you? It seems pretty innocuous. <laughs> like, did you have sexual relations yeah. with this woman? No. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, and you know, and, 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 and I just feel like we are, I don't know who coined the phrase, but we're living in a post truth environment like the truth doesn't matter and that's why i don't have any patience and god when you're on twitter you see these kind of conversations all the time i have no patience for these conversations that people try to start with like well in 2017 donald trump said x and look just last week he said y contradiction and like do you think anybody anybody cares at this point do you think his own people would be like the president contradicted himself he's got to go that's not going to happen it, like it's, that doesn't matter. the truth doesn't matter. It's like we are a. I think it's a huge mistake to say that we're a secular country. We're not. We are a we are a religious country, and I don't just mean because evangelical Christians have so much power in the government, but also because we are not a rational country. We are tribal, and we have certain belief systems that have taken the place of religion. And we can see the example of where that gets us right now, that you cannot have a conversation based on facts, ethics, morals, or behavior. And people on the left are guilty of this too. And, and, you know, and I got in a lot of arguments about, uh, God, I've already blocked his name out. The freaking uh, Saturday night live guy became a uh, Minnesota Senator. Oh, Al, Al Franken. Al Franken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See what I did? I, I had, I had, I had erased his name from my mind. Oh God! You know, but Alfred, like, you know, he was uh, accused of uh, being a sexual of sexual misconduct with a woman, and then more women came forward, and there were a lot. Yeah. And it and 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 I kept getting in arguments with people. It's like, well, it's one photo, and it was clearly in jest, and it's like, yeah, but there's all these other stories attached to it, and this is the era of me too. And we're supposed to be better than a president than elected a groper. 
Yes. And apparently, you know, now we have another groper representing the Democrats. It's bad, man. It's really, really bad. And it's like, ugh. And yeah, of course I'm going to vote for Biden. Like, I'd, I'd vote for I'd vote for a ham sandwich with a little mold on the corner of it if that was the Democratic nominee. And I, I just imagine... I'm running against Trump, I'd be phone bank for the moldy sandwich. All I think you about know. is the Simpsons and the inanimate carbon rod. I just like, I just, yeah. I would vote for the rod. Like, give yeah. me the rod. Oh yeah. my goodness. I was like, I'd be like, you know, it'd be like six o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. I'm cold calling people like, can I, can I, do you have a minute for me to talk to you about the moldy sandwiches platform? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> oh. hey, for starters. <laughs> the sandwich is 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 pro equality. <laughs> the, the moldy sandwich. The mold is indiscriminate. Okay. Contrary <laughs> to what you may have heard, he's not in the pocket of big mustard. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, we're going to talk about. Food. I'm sorry. <laughs> The sandwich is in a debate with Trump and like the top piece of bread moves like a mouth. Look, you're, you're, I, I ran reluctantly, you know, I was drafted. <laughs> oh. I was in my private life as a sandwich, but then the democratic party came to me and, <laughs> and said, this is the only thing we can agree on. The, the, only, the only thing is that this ham sandwich was good. It's now a bit moldy, but this is the fact. This is the only thing we can agree on right now. Oh, my goodness. If Trump did debate the sandwich, you know, the entire time he'd be looking at the sandwich going, I don't know, it doesn't look that moldy. I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> you, know, you, know that, you know that debate ends with him eating the sandwich. That's what's going to happen. It does. Well, I'm just thinking, like, of course, my mind immediately goes to the Simpsons and I ask myself, what would Homer do? You know, Homer eat the sandwich. No question. <laughs> he just keeps eating that gigantic moldy sandwich over and over again, even though it makes him sick. <laughs> my favorite in the entire run of the show is uh, when they, he, he's down in the basement looking at the moldy sandwich with the toadstool growing out of it that he's thrown away, and Marge calls down to the basement, Homie, are you eating that sandwich again? And there's a pause, and then Homer goes, no. <laughs> uh, we don't need to talk about this movie. This is too much fun. This is too much fun. <laughs> President's men. Oh. How quaint. What an adorable little morality play it is. Yes. And yes, so, so, the, the reporters, reporters, by the way, who are uh, 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 supported by a robust uh, infrastructure of journalism that is uh, dedicated to investigative reporting and ferreting out the truth and has the resources to conduct it competently. <laughs> yes. And uncovers this vast story of government malfeasance and then presents it to the public and the public so outraged that they turn on the president and people in the president's own party turn on the president and eventually the president resigns or face impeachment and removal. I mean, we can file this under fantasy, right? <laughs> I remember it's like when the Lance Armstrong revelations came out, my favorite genre of tweet was bookstores taking his autobiography and taking it and putting it in the fantasy section and then taking a photograph and turning <laughs> it. And I just feel like this movie, like it's just begging. It's begging for like uh, this sort of docudrama to just be moved into fantasy right now, because that's what it feels like. Like that. It might as well. It might as well. And, you know, I talked to friends of ours, mutual friends like Sean Burns and 
Sean says about how his parents, I think it was his dad, would buy the transcripts from the tapes and the transcripts from the court cases and the you know, they would they would form like doorstops in their house because the public was so so I gotta, enraptured. I gotta tell you I gotta tell you something. I was born in nineteen sixty eight. Watergate happened when I was a kid. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I became fascinated by it in high school, middle school and high school, and I actually started reading the transcripts and I started and, and, and yeah, I did, I did. And it was, uh, I can't remember who handed it. I think it was my dad. And I became this weird, like Wes Anderson character. I was like, this <laughs> I was like and can we even believe John Ehrlichman? You know, <laughs> I was like, what do you think's on the 18 minutes? And they're like, we're trying to play kickball, man. Can we just put a sock in it for two minutes? I'm like, what do you think? If he hadn't resigned, do you think they would have removed him? And it's like, you're in, you're, you're, can you just finish the test first and then we'll discuss it? Oh my God. <laughs> I could just imagine you like bottle rocket era, a beret and just asking grown adults, like interrogating them about what, okay. There was a guy, there was a guy named Mr. Washington who was my instructor in the ninth grade. And he, I, I went to this government and law magnet high school before I decided to become a visual artist and a writer. And, and it was a crazy, like super nerdy school in the public school in Dallas. But, uh, Mr. Washington was my, the guy who supervised the second half of the day where we studied the law, like all the different kinds of law. It was really interesting. And it actually has benefited me to this day. And like, he became my Watergate buddy. Like as soon as I, like one day I was like in the seventh and eighth grade, it was like, it's a kid who won't shut up about Watergate in Vietnam. And and then I got then I, then I got to the law and government magnet. And I was surrounded by people who were just like me. It was great. And one day, I'll never forget this one day. Like Mr. Washington and I are sitting around after class, and I said, "Like, uh, do you think Nixon would have been impeached and removed if he hadn't resigned?" And his eyes got really wide, and he's like, and he goes, "Let me lay it out for you." <laughs> And he had this whole like I, elaborate I, scenario of what how things would have played out. I love any story, <laughs> any script, anything where someone says the line, let me lay it out for you. Like Let me lay it out I, for you. It was like something out of all the president's men. That's exactly it was. That, that if someone says that, I'm like, I'm so in. That's like the Donald Sutherland Kevin Costner scene in Oliver Stone JFK, which I love so much. Like he he goes but to do everything except to say, Let me lay it out for you. He's just like yeah, and it was great. And he was like, he was like, he was my drug supplier. Like he was giving me, he was giving me like additional reading on Watergate. It's like, have you ever read Will G. Gordon Liddy? That's some crazy shit, man. And I'm like, no, lay it on me, brother. Lay it on me. I got it. I'm like reading it on the bus on the way home. I'm like, God, this guy's off his rocker. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Can you just shut up and eat your pork chops and stop talking about water deep for <laughs> minutes? Your okay, mom, your, 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 your dad, the great jazz artist that he is, like tinkering away at a piano, you're tapping him on the shoulder. Dad, dad, I just I just read this great biography on G. Jordan Liddy. G. Jordan Liddy. And he's like, get out of here. Get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but if I'd said Miles Davis, it would have been a different story. Yeah, would have went, stop. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Oh, so, so the parking garage, the parking garage, we are, wow. 
I'm just having too much fun. I forgot there was even a show that we were doing. I thought we were just talking. Um, no, I feel no. like I need to see. I feel like, you know, when the ship is starting to cross the equator line, we need to try to steer it back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, let, let's get back to North America. Look, we are, for folks listening, this is, uh, you're, you're going to be listening to this quite some time after Matt and I record it. So I, I hope it's a, a beautiful little uh, slice of nostalgia for maybe a slightly better part of 2020 because as, as it's projected you know there's going to be an asteroid an alien invasion uh an earthquake <laughs> a tidal wave a tsunami you know whatever 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 else you can imagine in in roland emmerich's you know visual board of inspiration <laughs> in his house something's going to happen but it's the 105th minute we've just seen the incredible scene between segretti and Bernstein in his apartment, and they're sort of unpacking because the malfeasance of the presidency in the Republican Party at the time to undercut and do nasty things to sort of uh, to throw their opponents off uh, the, any momentum that they were going to be building, they don't know how far that goes. They don't know what's happening. And so once again, it's one of the rare scenes that we get back into this parking garage. It's an absolutely ripper of a scene. I think we're going to watch it together. We'll watch it right now. And then we'll come back and unpack it. I think that might be the only way that you and I are going to get back on track. Cause I just, I just want to talk more about your teacher giving you books. I want to talk more about Deadwood. Uh, I want to talk about all the things that we've digressed upon, but I think this will be a beautiful moment for us to check in with Robert Redford and Hal Holbrook in the garage. Let's do it. All right. Rat fucking. In my day, it was simply known as the double cross. In our present context, it means infiltration of the Democrats. Segretti won't go on the record. But if he would, we know he would implicate Chapman. And that would put you inside the White House. specific how high up you'll have to find that out for yourself i don't like newspapers i don't care for inexactitude and shallowness a creep slush fund that financed the rat fucking we've just about got that nailed down i don't know how to change I don't like inexactitudes. I don't like newspapers. <laughs> and did you, cha- and did, did you change cabs? Bless. What? A great, what? So. So have you have you talked have you talked about the real guy, the real deep throat? Yeah, we talked a little bit about Mark Felt, a little bit. But I'd love to talk about it, knowing that you're a geek on it. It's great. And we have talked a little bit about the Liam Neeson terrible Liam Neeson movie that was made about Mark Felt, which uh, is available right now for people if you want to watch. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to repeat uh, too much of what's been covered already on this. But, but essentially, Mark Felt, the associate director of the FBI, was revealed as Deep Throat in 2005. And and uh, prior to that, there had been some skepticism about whether or not this Deep Throat person even existed. And uh, the editor of the All the President's Men book, which was derived from the original Washington Post reporting, said that there was no Deep Throat character in the book. And a lot of people, particularly Republicans who were mad that Nixon was no longer the president, speculated that they just made this guy up or that he was a composite uh, and, and that it made the story more, I guess, uh, literary or cinematic or something and, and uh, that it was a composite. 
And they said, no, he's a real person. We can't tell you who he is because we've been promised that we wouldn't reveal his identity until after his death or until the point arrived when he said that it was okay. And eventually, uh, 31 years after Nixon's resignation and 11 years before he died, um, an attorney for Phelps' family confirmed that he was deep broke. And of course, that didn't settle the matter. There are still people who say, "Well, he's not really deep throat. There's really some other explanation." But I think we can. I think we can accept that. Yes, if a guy is the was the associate director of the FBI during Watergate, then yeah, there's a possibility that he might actually have some good intel to give to some reporters if he if he thought that the president represented a threat to the country, which he did. So, so that's it. And, uh, you know, but of course the way that Hal Holbrook plays that guy and the way that he's lit and the way those scenes are staged turns him into this. No wonder people wondered if he was real. Yes. I mean, the way they shoot that scene, like those are the most uh, movie like scenes in the movie. The rest of the movie is very good for the most part about presenting things in a naturalistic way as if it's something that could actually happen. It's only the deep throat scenes that feel like there's a whiff of bullshit to them. Yes. And that's not a bad thing. It's not detrimental to the movie, but there's definitely like, even the first time I saw it, you know, I think I was probably 14, you know, deep in my Watergate obsession. And I remember thinking like, I wonder if that's exactly how it happened. Yes. You know, like, like in a parking garage and there was, and he's smoking a cigarette and wearing a trench coat and there's blue light on his face and all that. And, you know, for years and years, I stopped doing it because basically people don't kind of really care about Watergate anymore and nobody was getting the joke. But for years, when I used to smoke, if I went to a movie with somebody and we parked the car, I would deliberately walk a little bit behind them and then I would hide behind a, a, a pillar or other obstruction. They go, Matt, where are you? And I would step out from behind it and stand under a light and light a cigarette and go, let me lay it on you. <laughs> there's not enough of that. Uh, that's not, there's not enough of that. I only want to be in a parking garage smoking and saying, let him, let me lay it on you. Well, back in my, yeah, back yeah. In my time, it was called the double cross. Listen to me say, are we going to go to Wendy's or not? Listen to me. This goes straight to the top. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, you, um, can we discuss it over chili fries? <laughs> that'll you put know? you inside the White House, Matt. That'll put you inside the White House. <laughs> exactly. It was like, that'll put you inside of the Wendy's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's a, it's astounding to me how much impact this scene, these scenes, these parking garage moments had on popular culture. It's staggering. Yes. It's it's the default place for sensitive information to be conveyed to the intrepid heroes of the movie and and like the x-files did variations of it a million times um the finale of the americans like the arguably the dramatic peak of the entire series occurs in a parking garage and it's not you know uh, a source like spilling beans to a reporter but absolutely i mean i don't think there's any possible way that the people who made that scene were thinking about all the president's men when they were lighting that parking garage I've only, and I've, one of the guys I've only just... is an FBI guy I've only just started the Americans. I'm way, way behind. Um, and largely because I've been reading so much praise of it. And it's, it's, it's a show that is steeped in this, the style of the whole, yeah. like the authenticity, but then also this, you know, these moments that get that pure cinema moment, as you described it before, it's, it's sensational. It is. And you know, it's funny, right before I joined you for this podcast, I was, I was sitting in the living room eating dinner with my children. I have five kids between the ages of 15 and 23. And we were eating pork chops. Guys, let me lay it on. <laughs> yeah. Like, dad, can you shut up about Watergate for five minutes? But, but, uh, 
No, but we were watching The Simpsons, and it's the episode where Sideshow Bob gets out of uh, prison for the 38th time, and he runs for mayor against Mayor Quimby. And there's a in the parking lot, uh, there's a scene in the parking lot with Smithers, Burns' assistant, and he's wearing a trench coat and smoking a cigarette. And I thought, how fortuitous that we should be uh, watching this. This is what, you know, I think even in the States, I don't, and you talk about pop culture dominance, I don't think people know how much The Simpsons was played in Australia. So there are so many movies still to this day that, like, I, I will watch a reference. I'll watch it and I'll go, oh, my God, that was a Simpsons reference. I'm still piecing them together because some of them are, you know, Barney uh, smothering Homer with a pillow and then with, and then smashing a fountain out the window and running off into the hills, one full of the cuckoo's nest style, which you cannot possibly understand as like a seven-year-old. You cannot understand that that's what it is. But then some of them are like that with Smithers where it's just like, Oh, I've got a garage scene. Of course he's smoking. Of course he's going to be lit just at the eyes. Of course he's wearing a trench coat because that's that's our language of, you know, espionage and insiders and inside sources. It is. And you know what's really funny about that is that, you know, because The Simpsons is basically the Smithsonian of television, like it's become this incredible repository. Like I've, I've actually come to believe that the only reason that knowledge of classic cinema hasn't been completely wiped out already is because of The Simpsons. Because I can't tell you how many times that one of my kids has been introduced to something, some classic piece of cinema from another decade by The Simpsons, and then gone down a rabbit hole. Like, you know, just a few weeks ago, we were watching uh, Rear Window. I said, let's all watch Rear Window. It's really good. And they're actually pretty open-minded about old movies. They know that I don't show them an old movie. I don't think there's at least a chance they'll like it. And they loved Rear Window, but immediately within like five minutes, one of them was like, this is the episode of The Simpsons where Bart breaks his leg. Like, it is. <laughs> that's that's how we all come to know it. That's how we all. Come to oh, know oh, oh. It. I got to tell you, since we're since we're going on tangents and allowing ourselves to, I got to tell you about my my one of my boys, uh, his obsession with uh, his obsession with uh, Psycho. He was about eight years old. I'm walking him to school, and he's humming. And I'm like, are you humming the theme to Psycho? He says, what's Psycho? And I said, it's a movie by Alfred Hitchcock. It's a very scary movie. You didn't see Psycho, did you? And he said, I don't know what that is. He's like, I'm singing some music that I heard on The Simpsons. And I remembered, oh, yeah, they made constant Hitchcock jokes on The Simpsons, and Psycho particularly got a workout. And I said, no, that's from a movie. Whenever they play that piece of music, and I hummed a couple of other things, I said, that's from the soundtrack to Psycho by Bernard Herrmann. And he said, can I see Psycho? And I said, no, you're eight. (laughs) But I'll tell you sort of generally what it's about. I eventually did let him watch it. I think it was like 11 or something. And uh, um and he, but I, he said, can I, he said, will you, won't, won't, will you give me the movie? And I said, no, I told you, you can't see it. And he said, well, can I get the album? Can I get the CD? And I said, yeah. And I bought him the Psycho soundtrack CD and he played it like on endless repeat while he was building with his Legos. And people would come over to the house and they hear the Psycho music blasting in the back of the house. They go, what's going on back there? And I'm like, oh, it's just my son. He loves Psycho. And <laughs> And then he, he finally impe- got to he has impeccable Psycho. taste for a soundtrack. My God. <laughs> he finally out. got to see Psycho with his sister and they both loved it. And it was a great experience because I was in the kitchen cooking dinner while they were watching it. And neither of them knew anything about the plot. And I, and I felt like I was w- listening 
to people in 1960 watching Psycho. They had absolutely no idea what was coming. They thought Janet Lee was the hero and she was going to be in the whole film. And, and, and it was great. It was like an absolutely pristine viewing experience for the both of them. And then after that, James started like messing with my brain and he would do things like he would be blasting the psycho music and I would, he would wait for me to like walk over to the part of the living room where I could see down the hallway and he had turned off all the lights except for the bathroom so that he was silhouetted and he was just standing in the doorway motionless. And I was like, James, James, what's going on, man? And he didn't respond. I'm like, James? And he's like, ha, 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 I got you. You that, the, peak, the peak was when I was I was cooking dinner. It was winter, and you know when you cooked, we we were on the second floor, and like if you don't crack the window, it fogs up, right? Yeah. And the window to the terrace was right next to the refrigerator, and uh, I opened the door to the refrigerator, and James is in the kitchen, and I opened the door to the refrigerator, got some stuff out, and then I closed the refrigerator door, and I noticed there was writing in the steam, and I looked, and it said, "I will kill them all," and I was like, "Jesus." <laughs> I just want to say I've got, um, I've now got a three and a half year old and an almost two year old. And, um, that, 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 those parenting stories, forget people who are like, read your kids stories, do this and that. I, I can't wait to, to terrify them with a scare, proper scary movies and, and, and to what, and to watch their minds get blown by introducing films that, you know, to your point, I think you made that point of like, you know, films pre the two thousands, uh, that people just seem yeah. to have an aversion to naturally rewatch. And, uh, I think that that's been such a joy with me, with the Simpsons. And I literally, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day about it. It was so funny that we're talking about it now. It's just like, I, there are so many references in the Simpsons that I found later and like was blown away and then had to find, you know, it was a lot harder to go back and find, you know, now at least you can stream them, but it was so hard to like, Oh, I've got to go back to that DVD episode in season five. Cause that's where that reference is from. And I have to watch it right now um, because it, you know, you, you see it in everything. And it's like the, you know, it's like the films that Quentin Tarantino sort of absorbed with Pulp Fiction. You know, people watch Pulp Fiction and then they see all the carbon copies and then they see the original films that he sort of lifted from, if you like. And, and you're like, oh, this is Pulp Fiction. Well, it's, it's one of those. Well, you know, of course, he's, uh, people like him and Scorsese and Spike Lee and other people who are very kind of Brechtian in the way that they showcase their references Part of the reason for that, it's not just that they love something and want to say, hey, I love this thing, but it's also um, they want to share the thing and they want to create more fans of, of whatever the thing is. And and I feel like, they're, uh, unfortunately, filmmakers are only moderately successful when they do this because a lot of people just aren't curious. They're just not curious people. And, and if people were curious, Star Wars would have created a much bigger fan base for John Ford and Akira Kurosawa. Oh, yeah. You know, like as it is, people may know, oh, yeah, Star Wars. There are, there are quotes from The Searchers, a John Ford film in that movie. It's like, have you ever seen a John Ford film? No. Why not? There's like 50 of them. <laughs> it's, and, you know, like and, any one of them. And at least 20 of them are great. At least. Yeah. Right? Like, like, you know, he wasn't batting a bad average. You know, like two out of five were like and five how, stars. How can you not how can you not want to consume everything Kurosawa ever made? If you love if you love Star Wars and you find out that it's basically a you know, at least fifty percent an uncredited remake of an Akira Kurosawa film, um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I think it's a lot of fun to figure out the component parts that things are made from and, and look at them, go back and look at the original. And then you realize that the original is also usually a, a, a composite of some other influences. That's kind of what art is. And uh, it's not, you know, I used to think it was depressing, but now I think it's just inevitable that people see things in a, a Scorsese film or a Tarantino film, or more recently, like Spike Lee's to five bloods, and they say, oh, that's a reference to Apocalypse Now or whatever. And it is. But, you know, Apocalypse Now is not the first movie to use Ride of the Valkyries in a, in a, in a big showboating, auteur, watch me kind of sequence. Fellini did it before in Eight and a Half. Yes. And, that's, and that's, where, that's where Coppola got it from. And Coppola always wanted to be Fellini. Like, that's why he carried on like, a, like the ringmaster or empresario of cinema for a long time. I love, I love Coppola, but it's like... He, Coppola wanted to be Fellini. He wanted to be Visconti. He wanted to be all of these these great Italian with a capital I filmmakers. And uh, and it's funny that now you hear Ride of the Valkyries and you think Apocalypse Now. And of course, a lot of people may not even know what that movie is, and they may think it's a, a reference to Rango, which also has. <laughs> yes, the Ride yes. of the Valkyries in in Rango was great, it and it was it, it rescored on a banjo. <laughs> I, I, yeah, but I'm I, I, sorry to keep bringing us off the track here, but no, this is exactly what this is exactly the kind of conversation that I hope to have with you about any movie. It's we 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 load it up with tangents, but it's but that's what I uh, there's a really great and I think you would love it, Matt. So if you can track it down, I'd love you to. There's an Australian TV show called Bluey. It's for little kids. <laughs> And it's each episode is seven minutes long. I know I don't know how all the president's minutes is talking about Bluey now, but this is a good tangent. And we're talking about intertextuality. And it's the, each episode is seven minutes long, and it's about a young uh, family of blue cattle dogs. So it's a dog family, and the whole universe is full of dogs. And the the guy, the lead creator behind it is two guys. There's a producer called Daly Pearson who's excellent, making some really exciting stuff out of Oz. But the the key creative is like a sort of Trey Parker-esque guy named Joe Brum who writes every single episode. And he's a dad, a father of two girls. And the it's a little family. The dad's name's Bandit, mum's name's Chili, and the, the daughter is named Bluey and Bingo. And that show, there's a recent episode that they call Flat Pack. It's about the family go to Ikea and come back to build something together. And the mum and dad are fighting, building this thing, and it's very adorable. But what it <clears> ends up being, it's like the theory of, like Darwinian theory of evolution, ending with like projections of the Sistine Chapel in heaven, Entangled, entangled, entangled in this cartoon. And when I first watched it, not only did it make me well up as a, you know, a, I watch this show every day. I just want to say forever. I watch it every day, at least three or four episodes with my kids. It's their pre-bedtime ritual. The two kids watch it before they go to bed. And it's so like the ability for kids shows to do that. And there's another episode called Sleepy Time, which uh, it basically is this insane you know, references to like Apocalypse Now, uh, sorry, not Apocalypse Now, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey to Sunshine. It's uh, like just visual references. It's absolutely stunning. And I think you would get a real kick out of it because some episodes are super intertextual and some of them are just really great like uh, things. And another one that's like a mini Vietnam movie um, called Army where these two kids are at daycare together and they go and pretend they're on patrol. And um, it's just, oh, wow. it's incredible. So if you get a chance to check it out, like it would be fun for you to check out as a parent, I have so much fun watching it. I'm like, it's, 
I can't stand Paw Patrol or some of those other shows. They make me want to kill myself watching it. It's just the most awful <laughs> crap. Um, but 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 something like Bluey, you know, I would love you to check it out because it's that. It's and so when I'm watching it, there's a couple of these episodes where I'm like, that guy's a genius. Whoever he like Joe Brum, this mysterious figure. I'm like, that guy's a genius. He he's telling these really beautiful and insightful stories, and this intertextuality is him like, you know. I love being mm -hmm. able to observe the subliminal messages going into my kids' heads and later. And, he, and they even do an episode called Zoo where the dad bandit pretends he's an ape that's escaped and it's like a mini King Kong story. Um, and, oh, that's great. And it's just beautiful. Like there's so many, so many fun things uh, that are happening there. But it's a, I, I, the, kid, the real great children's TV and filmmakers um, have the most fun, like Rango. With having a rise of the, Val <laughs> rise of the Valkyries and banjos and stuff like that. Yeah, Rango was Rango was a particularly good experience because James. I saw that actually with my son James, and we had gone to see that. We had gone to see a different movie. There was a movie called Battle L.A., which I don't know if you even remember. Oh, it, was it was like an it, alien but, invasion. Did it have like Aaron Eckhart or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was not good, and it was, and it was, in fact, it used, it had the some of the worst shaky cam photography I've ever seen. In fact, my son, who was just a little kid, he was. I looked over at him, and he looked really sad and bored. And I said, "What's wrong?" And he said, "I don't know what's going on." And I said, "It's an alien invasion movie. They're fighting the aliens." He said, "No, I mean, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening." And I realized that I really didn't either, and it was because the filmmaking was so bad. <laughs> And, 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 and there was a scene where like, uh, Aaron Eckhart was doing, he was just doing pushups and there were like seven different camera angles and they were all shaky. And I was like, uh, and he said, do we have to stay here? And I said, no. And he said, you can leave. And I said, yeah, you can leave a movie. There's no law that says you don't have to. And he said, well, he said, well, let's leave. And I said, okay. And I left and I, and I asked for a refund and you know, not, a lot of people don't know this, but you can get a refund for almost anything as long as you, you're not too deep into the movie. And I went to the lobby and I said, would, would it be okay if we got a refund or just exchanged our tickets for something else? This movie, and he, what's wrong? We were like, we both really hate the movie. And, and the guy, the manager was like, it's fine, I don't care. And he said, do you want your money back or do you want to see a different movie? And I said, what's playing? And the movie that was playing, it's like 10 minutes from now, Rango. And I was like, let's go see Rango. And man, am I glad I did. Great. That's a great movie. I mean, Gore Verbinski, more people should be talking about Gore Verbinski. Yeah. I don't even know if there's place for that person in Hollywood now. Like he was making like extremely expensive films and in some cases like franchise films like the pirate films, but they're really weird. They are weird. They're truly weird films and I love and and they're funny and exciting, but they're just fucked up. Like in a good way. <laughs> they're really like a lot of friends in his movies you're like what do, I would like to get a glimpse in, inside the brain tissue of the person who came up with something like this. I mean, he, he kept, there was a while there where he was kind of giving me what I used to get from Tim Burton. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And they were giving him the money to do it. That's what was crazy. It's like he makes that first Pirates movie and it's deeply weird and great and <laughs> the, like entanglements of like death and prophecy and class. And you're like, huh, this actually has, this has something. And this you, know, you, know, you know how much I love The Lone Ranger. Yes. I love the yeah, Lone Ranger. Yeah. The Lone Ranger is—it's yeah. a, it's a '70s pot western, like for the new millennium. It's—it's it's a really strange film. Deeply strange and di hugely disgustingly violent as well in parts. And you're like, what is going on? This is not. Painful, yeah, it like, it's not painful. And it's also like Big Trouble in Little China, and that the hero is kind of useless a lot yes. of the time. Yes. The white hero is useless. Yeah, uh, and and Army Hammer—that is his perfect role. 
the useless <laughs> hero. He should like the, he like, it, on his resume. He should have that. Like he's he's perfect at that. He's he's really wonderful. All right. Speaking yeah. of not so useless heroes, let's get back to uh, really ever so briefly. A fun, <laughs> a fun a fun story that I want to talk to you about is if you've ever seen Mark Felt. He looks exactly like Hal Holbrook. Like they could be doppelgangers for one another. And what's so crazy is in some of the lore of the making of this film, there's a hilarious moment where it's like Bob Woodward insisted on Hal Holbrook. Like there was a cachet of like some of the greatest character actors in the history of American cinema. They're all just lined up to wait in the wings to do this deep throat scene. They're all excited to just come on and play a couple of bit roles and get out of there. And he was very <laughs> insistent. And so what's hilarious is that even in Bob Woodward's, uh, promise if you like that it was going to be very low-key what you know he, he they they wouldn't reveal a source he still was intent on picking the guy who looked most like the guy for on authenticity reasons which i just think is absolutely hilarious <laughs> it's like you pick the doppelganger for the guy even though you want people not to know who he is that's really funny i didn't know that and he's just so wonderful. And the other thing that we've talked a little bit about on the show before, and I wanted to get your take on it is, I, I, and we've sort of half mentioned it is, for someone like Gordon Willis, one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived, he had the nickname Prince of Darkness. It's like, it's funny that you go from something like Parallax View, which is beautifully abstract and has these massive splashes of colors and this, you know, super oppressive zooms where Beatty looks like a tiny speck of an ant on the screen and everything else is so you know gargantuan around him. And it's like, he comes to this very, very deeply authentic move, movie where everything is, you know, shot for realism. And it feels like, you know, this is, this is Willis unleashed. You know, these car park scenes are like yeah. him getting to be, you know, get us into yeah. the subterranean world that doesn't feel real. A thing like that, it's like, you know, a cinematographer who's so um, distinctive and so stylish and like you keep keeping under wraps, like a scene like that arrives and it's like, it's like in a Magic Mike movie when they rip off their tuxedo and there's, <laughs> you know, and they start dancing. It's like, like, it's like, it's, he's, all right, the flyaway tuxedo, now we get the real Gordon Willis, you know, <laughs> like when, uh, like Robert Richardson. Can I, just, can I just say that is my favorite <laughs> description of satisfaction. It's like in the Magic Mike movies when the tuxes get ripped off. It's like when Joe Manganiello <laughs> takes his shirt off in the in, in the in the service station. It is like yeah, like you know, basically, uh, I, I think that uh, you know Robert Richardson shooting um, shooting Kill Bill or Natural Born Killers. It's like it's basically ten straight minutes of Channing Tatum. Yes you know, gyrating. That's what it is. It's like, it's nothing handy, nothing but the fun. It's like, uh, I remember filmmaker, filmmaker friends of mine used to kind of make fun of Robert Richardson because there was a period of about, I don't know, 10 years or something where every movie that he did, whenever there was anybody being interrogated, he would do the white hot shafts of light coming down from the ceiling. Like, like it was the Lord judging them or something. And those things were so hot that, the table where people's hair would catch fire. And I believe it happened on JFK. And, and uh, in fact, a low budget movie that I produced, the cinematographer is like, let's do a Robert Richardson white hat, white hot shaft of light this scene. I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And I do the, the, it was a, it was a lawyer's office that we had borrowed. And, <laughs> and we started to smell smoke when we realized that the intensity of that light, it was setting the documents on this lawyer's desk on fire. 
and we had to put it out. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So if the lawyer who's our office we borrowed is listening to this, yeah, we, we did that. That was us. I'm sorry. I don't know what became of the humans, but, but, but on the plus side, your office is, is not burned to the ground. <laughs> well, it's, it's that beautiful warning that smoke will give you. Right? <laughs> like, this is about to catch fire. I smell smoke. <laughs> it was like, you know, like, yeah, who's, yeah, who's eating mesquite grilled chicken? Not me. Ooh, must be something else. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, um, the last time we chatted, a very fond memory for me. Uh, was that you accidentally, we were having so much fun talking that you accidentally burnt dumplings. Yes. <laughs> and, and it made it, it like, as much as I was like, oh man, his, his lovely wife, Nance, and the kids are going to not be very happy with him at all for the burning those dumplings. <laughs> but I had so looked much like, fun. Looked like, looked like, like demon eggs. There was like nothing left. There was just charcoal for cats. It was like one of the kids didn't know I was making dumplings. Like, what are those? I'm like, those are supposed to be dumplings. They're like, really? <laughs> um, so uh, I, I feel like with the smelling of smoke and that really fond memory, I think this is a great way to go and just say it has been an absolute treat talking to you again, my friend, about this movie and this minute and having this conversation has just been amazing. So I just want to say thank you for being part of the show. I feel the same way. Isn't he just a treasure? Matt Zola Zeitz, you can find him on Twitter at Matt, M-A-T-T, Zola, Z-O-L-L-E-R, Zeitz. You can go to mzsworldstore.com and you can get signed copies of all of his amazing books. He's still a TV uh, critic and uh, for New York Magazine, an editor-at-large at rogeredatbird.com, um, and he's currently making a documentary on his dad, Days Olzite. So, look, just stay in touch with him. The best way is on Twitter. He's, you know, he's got a great following and he's a great interactor on there. Um, you can find his stuff all over those different publications, but Twitter is a great portal to those things. Um, I'm exceedingly grateful um, to know him and uh, for his friendship and, and for him being a part of these mad things that we do. Thank you so much for listening, guys. One Blake Minute on Twitter and Instagram at Pod for the show oneheatminute.com for everything and if you've got a little bit of scratch and you can afford uh, to sponsor the show uh, and 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 help us continue to make our great productions it is patreon forward slash oneheatminute but tough times so a share is massive a retweet is massive a recommendation to a friend a review thank you so much for listening we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes very soon When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.